Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the Reagan National Defense Forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, later in the program, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Rhode Island Democrat Jack Reed, and Huntington Ingalls Industries President and CEO Mike Petters. But first, our roundtable joins us for a quick tour of a busy week, including how the Omicron variant is impacting world markets, the decision by the United Arab Emirates to buy Dassault Aviation's Rafale jet, a three-decade campaign that's finally paid off for the French firm, and Bloomberg reporter Peter Robeson's new book, Flying Blind, The 737 MAX Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy right here in Washington, D.C. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And before we get started, a reminder for our audience to check out our two new weekly podcast series, Cavus Ships, uh, in which uh, our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, take a deep dive into naval issues, and our downlink podcast that focuses on all things space with our own contributing editor, Laura Winter. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Good to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, an absolute pleasure, especially, Sash. You're moving in a car, so we appreciate it. So if there's a little bit of dropout, I hope the audience understands. Uh, Ron, start us off, right? Omicron uh, still dominating uh, headlines. There's stuff we know. There are fears we have. Uh, market react- reacted sharply, as we discussed last week. Um, give us a sense on how the Aerospace and Defense Group performed over uh, over the past week. And since we're doing a very lightning round version, sort of anything else that jumped out uh, at you this week. Yeah, it was a it was a very volatile week, right? So we saw some recovery. Uh, you know, Monday we came in the office, the market kind of bounced back, and then it sold off again. So we're in a period of uh, Omicron driven uh, volatility in the market. Interestingly, the ten year yield, something we've been talking about on the podcast for a while now, uh, has pulled back. It, it's you know about one point three percent now, uh, and, and why that's important. The market it's indicating that the market is uncertain on the impact of variance versus economic growth versus what the Fed's going to do. So there's all kinds of cross currents in the market right now, and that's driving the volatility. Uh, probably the biggest news on the week, um, what just from a news perspective, was the CAAC in China coming out and uh, putting out an airworthiness directive on the 737 MAX, indicating that the MAX is at some point here will actually be going back into service in China, um, either late this year or early next year. Boeing stock rallied on that on a day when the market was happy uh, from, a, from a variant perspective. We saw a lot and it was a good market day. And then the next day was a bad market day and Boeing, Boeing sold off. Uh, I'd say from a trading perspective, probably one of the more interesting things about Boeing in particular is the two catalysts that most investors have been talking about on Boeing is the China certification, the 737 MAX, and eventually here when 787 starts shipping again. Um, and, and people look at those as catalysts for the stock. I think there was even an article in Barron's that was saying, oh, it's a big catalyst for the stock. But, uh, and I think Sasha would agree with this, when everybody thinks it's a catalyst for the stock, there's no surprise because when it happens, everybody's expecting it. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll see what happens here. But my sense is as we go into the end of the year, we're, we're in December now, we're going to rapidly get into the holiday season, is uh, investors are going to try to 
lock in what they have for the year. If we're going to go into an increasing volatility environment into the end of the year and people don't want to mess up the returns in the end of the year, I wouldn't be surprised if more investors kind of flip into cash or just try to hedge out risk into the end of the year, which would suggest that the market's just going to kind of continue to bounce around into the end of the year. And uh, were investors moved at all with the government closure drama that we saw uh, and the fact that we're going to operate on a continuing resolution through February? Um, no, no they, they weren't. I think the expectation was that there would be a continuing resolution, that something would come through that the government wouldn't actually shut down. Um, it's interesting. There's been, you know, we've had more conversations with investors around, you know, and, hey, there's a risk for a continuing resolution through for the whole year that that potentially could happen given the political dynamics and we're going into midterms. And, and, and the investor response has been on the defense names. That's okay. That's better than we were all thinking about last year. Um, so, you know, I, I, if we end up in a full year CR or this, you know, this mid period CR, I, I don't think that's being viewed as a bad thing right now from, you know, from markets. We'll, we'll see, but it really didn't um, come up all that much in conversation. Sasha, I want to go to you. Um, obviously, uh, Omicron uh, is a challenge. European governments already were trying to cope with Delta, and that was driving lockdowns and a lot of tensions. And then we have a 30-year sales campaign by Dassault uh, paying off uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, where Abu Dhabi has decided to buy uh, the, the Rafale. Walk us through sort of new fl- news flow from a European perspective, both on the aerospace uh, and on the defense side. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as Ron, you know, absolutely got right. It was a crazy roller coaster week. I mean, some immense uh, daily volatility, um, and it was almost random as to whether you ended the week on a, on on a on a uh, you know near term high or near term low or not. I mean, I would say most of the civil stocks ended on a low, and you know, Europe is in a very very patchwork way imposing this uh, astonishing patchwork. Uh, set of uh, travel restrictions and literally on a country by country basis. So for some countries, you have to take a test two days before you fly. For other countries, two days after you've flown or five days or 10 days, or you can't come in from a country that has declared it has uh, the Omicron variant, but you can come in from every other country. Um, and this, you know, it's absolutely crazy because uh, there are countries that have clearly got Omicron in Europe. They just haven't noticed it yet. And countries that have declared they've got Omicron, the basic problem there is um, that, you know, they detected it early and fessed up. Uh, So European travel just got a whole lot more difficult. And we're seeing this already in the comments being made by airlines that have a lot of uh, winter tourism. uh, And in Europe, that tends to be in skiing, let's be honest, but also sun down in the Mediterranean and uh, and so forth. They're starting to see drying uh, bookings dry up at the moment. So very, very a uh, very, very interesting, very tough week for some of the European civil aerospace stocks and Airbus, which um, peaked recently at about 115, 117 euros a share, ended the week at 98 euros a share, which just shows how much even a very, very big, you know, solid company comes back on this sort of sentiment. And on uh, the defense side of the ledger and the importance of the UAE deal? Oh, well, you know, I mean, is the patience a virtue? Uh, as you rightly pointed out, a 30-year um, campaign by Dassault uh, to sell Rafale, actually to sell everything to, uh, to the UAE. President Macron went there um, just before the weekend and signed a deal for 80, 8-0 Rafales. Makes um, uh, the UAE or will make the UAE the second largest Rafale operator after France overtakes Egypt with 57 Rafales 
uh, in service and on order. Um, and, uh, you know, the ramifications of this, in many respects, the ramifications in Europe are greater than the ramifications outside Europe, uh, in, in my view. Uh, and, you know, I really want to hear Ron and Richard's views on the, the F-35 in particular. But I'll, I'll talk about the, the European ramifications. Firstly, um, Dassault and hence France, and really Dassault and France are synon synonymous in this, they get to put the Rafale production rate up to probably nearly three aircraft a month. There's a big drop through in terms of economics from that uh, for them. Uh, secondly, uh, it takes Rafale production through to 2031 as a minimum. So that means that Dassault no longer has any sort of production gap uh, before the um, uh, you know, SCAF occurs. Uh, and so that, that's a huge relief for France. Uh, and that means that they can think even more long-term than usual about SCAF production and SCAF development and so forth. But here's the third implication that I would uh, suggest to you. Um, and this goes against the, the SCAF narrative I talked about just now. Dassault, France have been so successful with Rafale, particularly in the last three, four years or so, They've now got as good a skyline for Rafale as they've ever had in terms of exports. They've got as good a set of export customers as they've ever had, because pretty much every single Mirage 2000 operator, with the exception possibly of India, has now converted to um, high, no, sorry, not including, including India, has converted to Rafale. My feeling is that Dassault can actually, and France, and the, you know, so the two are synonymous, they can play hardball uh, in the whole SCAF politics, SCAF consortium, because what they can say is, we are the guys who bring the exports in. Every customer who's bought uh, Mirage 2000 went out, came back and bought Rafale. Nobody else can say that about a combat aircraft program, really, certainly in Europe. And so please, and Germany and Spain, we're talking to you now, don't think that SCAF is a one-third, one-third, one-third program. This is a program that has to be run by France, by Dassault. You can change the order of those if you want. Because, you know, we are the clear combat aircraft leaders in, in, in Europe. And I think it changes the dynamics of the SCAF consortium, SCAF politics, um, absolutely massively. Richard, I want to bring you in. Time is short, but I want to get your take on three things, right? Omicron uh, and the air travel outlook. We've already talked about markets uh, responding to Boeing and Airbus. If this gets as bad as some people think it might in terms of a perfect storm, uh, right? I mean, we're seeing Omicron in places where there's Delta and Omicron is replacing Delta, right? There was this sense that the Delta variant might be able to survive. And unfortunately, there are still pockets of completely unvaccinated people in the United States and elsewhere, uh, certainly in, in, in Europe as well. Talk to us about the Omicron impact. Talk to us about how the Rafale order changes the dynamic uh, for the F-35 around the world, right? I mean, now I would imagine the United Arab Emirates has a lot of leverage over Washington. If you don't give me these jets, I now have very good French jets I can buy. And oh, oh by the way, the French are developing a next generation combat aircraft, right? Uh, everybody would love to have the UAE as a development partner. And I think the French know that. And then lastly, Peter Robeson's uh, book, a uh, Bloomberg reporter uh, who uh, wrote uh, the book that is uh, now out, uh, Flying Blind, the 737 MAX tragedy and the fall of Boeing. Give us really quick your take on all three of those. The first one, we now have the historical record for the impact of the Delta variant on air travel uh, market growth recovery. And uh, frankly, it's it's not that bad. You know, I mean, it's definitely a fish hook there in the summer, uh, but then growth resumed. Um, 
you know, obviously this could be worse, but in some ways it could be better. The Atlantic, which has been sort of my go-to source for really great epidemiological writing, uh, made the excellent point that, you know, we're not going to know for another week or two, but there's a scenario here where this is, this fits that evolutionary biological pattern for diseases where it is more aggressive and spreading, but a lot less severe. And so far, there have been very few severe Omicron cases, and I don't think any deaths. That would be kind of a, well, dream scenario. Uh, not definitely a scenario, and I would urge everyone to get vaccinated, please. But um, if that actually happens and Omicron somehow becomes dominant and you have this thing that's more virulent but doesn't really kill anybody, it isn't all that severe, that would actually be a step towards moving the disease in the more manageable direction. Uh, of course, we just don't know, and it could turn out to be just as bad. But again, there's that Delta experience. Um, you know, it's going to be remembered as a few months out of the recovery and hopefully not a whole lot more. We're just going to have to wait and see. It's going to take another 10 days or so. Um, Rafael, fascinating. Yeah, talk about playing the long game and good for them. Uh, it sure does give the UAE more leverage in F-35 negotiations. But to a certain extent, you know, they were always going to dual source. Remember, they got 80 F-16 Block 60s plus, I believe, about oh, 50 or 60, whatever it was, Mirage 2000-5s and 9s. And they dual sourced in the previous, you know, it's been many years of dual sourcing. Um, so in other words, they still need an American jet uh, and they'll get something. Um, I, I suspect it will be the F-35. It does increase their leverage. Um, you know, per um, Sash's point, I think it does definitely help uh, Dasso and France's, as he says, their synonymous uh, leverage in the SCAF consortium, but only to a point, because frankly, if this were a partly German jet, I'm not sure the UAE would have bought it. You know, I, I still regard SCAF as ultimately degenerating into a Franco-French collaborative program because a lot of the charm of buying a French fighter is that you don't have to worry about asking for the keys to use it. And that, of course, is very high in the UAE's thinking. And if it's, you know, one third German, like, say, a typical tornado or, or Eurofighter, you might have to ask for the keys to use it. That removes some of the appeal. So I'm not so sure how they use that leverage, even though it does definitely give them a lot of uh, talking points in terms of why they should be in charge. And they're in charge anyway. You know, it's Dasso. They are amazing, but they're extremely autonomous. Uh, and yeah, lastly, you know, I, Peter Robeson's book on the 737 disaster and the evolution of Boeing culture, I think, is is really important uh, just because it, it's the first effort to, you know, provide a, uh, well, a setting straight of the record, you know, and we've had multiple months of, uh, frankly, to put, it, put, to put it bluntly, round up the usual test pilots uh, rather than any kind of, hey, let's look at what happened, what changed in the company's culture and how it develops aircraft over decades. And this book does that. So uh, he deserves tremendous credit for, and, and, well, over the past uh, year and a half or so coming up with this. Can't wait to have you guys back on again uh, next week. In the meantime, I hope everybody has a great week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Hope to see you next week. And a quick word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. While we were at the Reagan National Defense Forum, we had an opportunity to talk to the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Jack Reed, a Rhode Island Democrat. Here's our conversation. 
Mr. Chairman, uh, great to see you. Uh, each year we say that we don't want a continuing resolution, and, and yet the department ends up being saddled uh, with a continuing resolution. We, we talk about moving faster, but we ultimately can't uh, get out of our own way. Each time this happens, effectively, China wins. There's a lot of energy in this room for change. We've heard it from almost all the leaders who speak here. How do you harness that energy, and what do you have to do to not just move faster, but also break this uh, terrible CR habit? Uh, it's a uh, defect in a floor that has become more pronounced over the years since I've been in the, in the Senate. Uh, uh, one would like to say we just have to be more disciplined, that we have to have our you know, uh, uh, votes on our budget and the committees in the summer, summer and then by the early fall be ready to go. But there's so much that's, uh, one, riding on the, these appropriations bills, not just uh, dollars and cents, but there's policies issues and sometimes even authorizations. The other issue, too, is the, this year, the first year of a new presidency, uh, you have, particularly in the Senate, uh, nominations that have to be considered. And there's been lately a practice of stringing those out as long as possible. So that takes up time, which previously could have been devoted to the appropriations process. Uh, the American Rescue Plan was a, a major necessary, uh, which we got completed. And then we're now looking at reconciliation, but it's, uh, it's more difficult, and every year passing seems more difficult. And the CRs are really uh, detrimental to the professionalism of, and readiness of the force. How, how do you, you lawmakers like you change that dynamic ultimately, right? And do we need to have, you know, if we have a CR, have anomalies that allow you to be able to push legislation or at least push fighting for uh, or make exceptions for priority effort? Yeah, we, we do have a practice anomalies. We try to keep them down because you, you don't want it to be an authorizing engine. You want it to be the appropriations bill. Uh, but the other factor, too, is, you know, we're in a very interesting situation. We're in a 50-50 tied Senate uh, in which essentially under our procedures one or two people can sort of stop business uh, and that's the problem. It, this problem was not is not there typically when you have a, a significant majority. Uh, the House can be much more efficient because the rules essentially say you know, you can bring it to the floor when the speaker says bring it to the floor. So I think one of the, the, the problems is this is the result of the electoral process is we are, we're tied, basically. Uh, I, down. Uh, that, that will be an argument for one side or another to maybe change that dynamic uh, going forward. Uh, we just need more Democrats, that's all. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, sir, and I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, why Army uh, should be winning uh, in a week's time yes. as well. Um, Senator Schumer has delayed the NDAA. I don't, I don't want to necessarily get into the details of that, but that's raised frustrations. Um, how is all of this going to play out, right? Because there are folks, for example, who are making the recommendation, try tie the NDAA and the debt ceiling together, okay, well, that might work in the Senate, but it's going to alienate uh, the, the House uh, ultimately. How does this play out? I mean, how do we get an NDAA at the end of the, uh, the day? And, and what is it? Is it going to have the elements in it that you think we need, given the challenge that we've heard about here today? Well, I think it's going to have the elements. I think it's an excellent bipartisan piece of legislation. We work closely with our Republican colleagues. We of about 300 amendments at the committee, we took 100 and evenly divided. Uh, we have a substitute amendments that were, again, evenly divided. So it is a very sound piece of legislation. Uh, 
we were delayed by intervening events such as the American Rescue Plan and other things. But what was uh, somewhat disappointing is this week uh, we couldn't get uh, final passage because some of my Republican colleagues wanted amendments and they didn't get them and they basically stopped the show. So what we have to do is find a way, we will. Uh, for example, back in 2015, uh, the House was able to send over a message which had been negotiated between both the House and the Senate. It contained the substance of the NDAA, and frankly, it was the NDAA for that year, and it uh, passed and was signed by the President. That's one option. Uh, further down the road, and I hope this doesn't come to pass, at the very end of the year, there's the so-called skinny NDAA, which essentially just raises pay, sets top-line levels for expenditures, for services, et cetera. But uh, I would not like to see that. So I hope we can get it done next week. You know, one of the things we heard, when Frank Kendall, the Air Force Secretary, has talked about this, each of the services, that, look, Congress, help us move faster. Help us retire stuff. And at mm -hmm. the end of the day, every lawmaker is, oh, I'm all for change as long as, you know, don't get rid of the 50-year-old airplanes in my district. Right. Ultimately, how do we have to change that conversation? You've talked about the necessity of a BRAC for weapon systems, right. uh, ultimately. How do we go about doing this? Because time is running out, resources are limited, and we have an adversary that's charging ahead. Well, I think the recognition is growing that uh, we can legacy systems uh, that are expensive to maintain and critically not effective in a intense in our aircraft environment are not going to help us. And I think that's coming through. And I sense the tide is shifting. That you know we're going to be more cooperative with the services when they're asking for permission to take out uh, systems that they can show very clearly will not aid us in a, in a peer competition. Um, let me ask you about uh, Russia or Ukraine uh, and how it ties to China. Putin, in making his case to take Ukraine, is making the same case that's saying, hey, look, you know, this is uh, historically Russian territory, uh, just like the Chinese say Taiwan is historically uh, Chinese territory. From your standpoint, what does the United States have to do to deter Russia um, and, or respond in the event we have an invasion, as the concern is? Um, and what does that mean for defense spending and potentially you know, these two cases are very similar, gray area cases where mm -hmm. there, is, there is an aggressor uh, pressuring a smaller country. How do we need to think about the kind of dynamic that we're in? Uh, well, we, one, we have to try to deter any type of uh, kinetic action. Uh, that's both a diplomatic uh, effort and a military effort. Uh, we have been providing assistance to the Ukrainians in terms of uh, weapon systems. I, we could do more of that. Uh, not only to send a signal, but also to increase the, their lethality versus the, the Russians, which might slow them down. Uh, and then, uh, and diplomatically, we've been sending very strong signals that, you know, unprecedented sanctions would be imposed. Uh, and I think also, fundamentally, too, it comes down to the Ukrainians. And uh, as much as the Russians would like to think the Ukraine is part of Russia, the Ukrainians believe it's the Ukraine, and they will, they will fight. How does the United States need to start responding to this? We've been talking about this for a very long period of time, and yet the Chinese and the Russians are both, whether it's in the commons or in space or elsewhere, becoming more aggressive. How do we need to think about this? Uh, we need to think about it on an international basis in terms of uh, there are no rules there that are effectively enforced. How do we enforce the rules? And it's an issue that should concern every nation.
because all of our communications practically everywhere are tied up in space. Sir, thanks very much. While we were at the Reagan Forum, we also caught up with Mike Petters, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries. Here's our conversation with Mike. Mike, uh, always an honor and pleasure uh, seeing you. It's great that we've managed to see each other uh, now almost uh, every month uh, after two years of not seeing each other. Yeah, it's great to be with you again, Vago, and it is great to be out and see, making connections again. It's it's really uh, it's it's stimulating for sure. Um, and and it does make a huge difference. And it was great seeing you at uh, the at Navy League. Um, a lot has happened. I want to talk about the Alliant deal. That was uh, one of the things we discussed there. But um, a very important message that you had at the time was uh, that the nation's national security capability hinged on the workforce getting vaccinated uh, and being masked and taking protocols and precautions to make sure that you continue to deliver capability to your customer. Um, when some of these uh, vaccine and mask mandates have gone to court and gotten challenged, uh, I don't want to be too blunt about it, but it looks like DOD and the administration blinked. Uh, and now we're in a position where your own workforce is angry with you uh, and, and there are a lot of other contractors that fall in the same position. I know how uh, seriously you take the workforce and focus on what their best interests uh, are. Um, talk to us a little bit about how this is going to play out because at the end of the day, we now have an Omicron wave uh, of variant that may be bearing down on us, which could be particularly devastating for those who actually may not be vaccinated and have come to believe, hey, you know, I, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't, even if that has broader implications even for their own survival. Sure, a lot in that, Vago. And, you know, first of all, we should start with, this is a workforce that was deemed critical and essential at the very beginning of the pandemic when we didn't have vaccines. Uh, and we found a way, it was turbulent, uh, but as an industry and as a company, we found a way to work our way through that and get back to some level of, of predictable production and, and uh, kind of have been working down that path. Vaccines came into being at the towards the end of the last year and the beginning of this year, and we started vaccinating our workforce, and we saw a quick uptake on that. But then, as like all things, that we got to a point where it started to fade away. We, like everyone else in the industry, put a lot of incentives in place. We've tried all the different ways to uh, help people understand how important this is, uh, and uh, and we had we got to a point where there was not much more progress being made on that, and uh, and then there was an executive order. Um, the executive order that came out, uh, we took it at its, at its face and we went and told our employees, you know, basically uh, you have only this much time to get your shots before we, uh, we will have to actually take other action. Um, but it turns out that the implementation of the executive order has been, uh, I'd say, contract dependent, site dependent, however you want to frame it, it's been uneven. And, and as a result, what we have done at, at uh, HII is that uh, for those sites where we don't have contractual direction, like our shipyards, uh, we've suspended the deadline. We still have a policy that conforms to the executive order that it's a condition of employment, but we've suspended the deadline pending further contractual direction if, if we ever get that. Across the industry, though, this is, um, uh, and we see this over in our technical solutions division, um, this unevenness is really uh, has has tremendous impact going forward. I mean, it, 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 first of all, there's going to be cost and schedule impact on programs. There's going to be missions that are going to be affected. Uh, and now we get to the question of how do we convince people to continue to come into this industry? And so across those dimensions, uh, there's a, there's a uh, 
there's a there's a, a, a speed bump, if you will, out there that we're going to have to find our way. Working working with the with the government, we're going to have to find a way to go through that so we can mitigate as much of that as we possibly can. Uh, and so um, so that's kind of that's kind of where we are today. Uh, I don't know what that mitigation looks like. I you know I, I have a few ideas that we'll talk with the Pentagon about, but um, mainly we've got to find ways so that we just don't almost arbitrarily turn around and take really talented people and send them home uh, and create a disincentive for people to come into our industry. We, we are strapped for trying to bring people in already and, uh, and that, that competition for talent uh, will actually be a national security issue for the next decade. Um, so how, well I know you said you were going to discuss some of this with uh, the Pentagon, but what are some ideas that helped you uh, get there? And I, I hope our audience understands we're in the middle of multiple, this is a three ring circus uh, at the end of the day, and we're uh, near another panel. But what, what are some of those ideas that get us to where we, we need uh, to be? Um, and I want to ask you a little bit about uh, inflation pressures. Our mutual friend, Renan Horowitz of Elbit Systems uh, of America has been talking a little bit about this as well. But talk to us about what some of your ideas are to, to do this. Well, I, I certainly don't have a corner on the, on the great ideas part of this in terms of how do you mitigate this. But I, I think that we have, we've now created a, a um, I'd say a, a pretty blunt direction that we now need to go through and think about this in terms of mission by mission, site by site, contract by contract, person by person. How are we going to manage that in such a way that we minimize the impact that this might have? Uh, and that's you know, and that can take any. There's all probably uh, you know, there's any number of forms that that will take. But that's what you're talking about is taking something that's, you know, pretty broad, and going down and being very specific. And and I think that that's, uh, you know, I think there's mechanisms that are there or can be there that will help us get our way through this. So that's, uh, that's what we hope to keep moving ahead. Are you, are you concerned about the Omicron uh, variant, right? I mean, a lot of modifications to the spike protein and, and concerns that this could really be the worst of all possible viruses that is already out-competing Delta in some places where it's been spotted. Uh, you know, Vago, I, I, we have been concerned from the very beginning that as long as there's a fraction of our population that's not vaccinated, the possibility that a variant could come along that would be worse uh, is there. Uh, that's what happened with Delta, you know, and frankly, Delta was so contagious, and yet we were lucky that it was not more lethal than it was. As, as sad as and tough as it was, um, you know, our concern is really that as long as we have folks that are not, that don't get shots and that there's that there's a, a medium for the virus to spread in, it will continue to evolve to a point where maybe the vaccines are no longer effective, or maybe it's more lethal, or maybe it's more dangerous. I don't know enough about the, the, the latest one. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that it won't be the last, as long as we still have uh, a part of our population that's not vaccinated. And um, how much, as a percentage of HII's workforce, how many are vaccinated and how many are not? We're at about 80% right now vaccinated across really across every dimension it's it's about at 80% and we saw you know in the in the aftermath of the, of the executive order that number went from 60% to 80% so it had some it had positive effect um, you know but we're now kind of getting to the kind of the the other side of the executive order is it did harden some people's positions that may have had more time to if they'd had more time they might have been able to kind of get their way there um, and I don't have any real good way to, to slice and dice that but uh, but we're sitting at about 80% right now, and, and I think uh, I think we're probably probably going to be there for a while. 
Um, you, you and I, I'm going to ask one last question about this, but it is very, very important in terms of, you know, if another wave does manage to derail um, on the economy or uh, military capabilities. Um, you know, you, you said there's all sorts of ways of doing this, right? You can mandate this, you can also talk to your employees. What, how are you trying to work with your workforce to try to encourage them to do something that's going to, you know, sort of get them to eat their vegetables, even if you've got to put a little bit of cheese sauce on it? I, you know, I think that across our company and across our industry, we've been, our industry has been very sharing in things that worked and didn't work, and we tried this and it really took off, and so we all went and did that. Uh, there's been a whole lot of collaboration. If you if you can imagine anything out there, we tried it. We we tied vacation days to it. We put it. We put uh, uh, money against it. We put. Uh, we had uh, lottery drawings. Uh, we we did all of the things that that uh, anybody. If anybody thought of a way to do this, we tried it. We were a great lab for that, and whether it would work or not. And we're kind of out of ideas, you know? We're just out of ideas. Now it's really about just, you know, let's help people understand the, the separate, separate fact from fiction. You talked about a workforce. Um, it, it takes uh, many years just at an apprentice level in order to get the kind of capabilities that you need in, in, a, in a shipyard. It takes decades to build that skill. You're, you're a product, even when you get to senior industry levels, the, the challenges of this industry take a long time to grow the senior level talent and for engineering as well as on construction. Um, Ronan Horowitz, uh, Elbit's uh, CEO, uh, Elbit's uh, America's CEO, was on the program. He participated in uh, the Reagan National Defense Forum. Uh, uh, manufacturing and industrial-based competitiveness survey. From your standpoint, do you have the same talent uh, management, uh, the same inflation concerns, right? Talk to us a little bit about that. The cost of materials is increasing everywhere. Uh, the cost of labor is going up. There are a lot of folks who say, look, you know, that inflation was artificially constrained, right, in terms of material prices. Those are maybe adjusting just like labor prices are realistically adjusting. But at the end of the day, you know, whether it's just or unjust or whatever is causing it, you have to cope with it. How are inflation pressures affecting your business, and at what point do you got to go to the Pentagon and say, we got to renegotiate some of these contracts? Well, most of our contracts uh, have already got protections and provisions for sharing of those, those increases. Uh, and, and because they're long-term contracts, we, we actually are able to hedge a lot of the, the you know, the day-to-day -day vibration out of, this, out of the cost part of our system. I think I want to go back to something different, though, Vago. I mean, because I think this is sort of underlying all of this cost increase and challenges. Uh, we've seen over the last 20 years, we've seen that um, the, the, the number of hours that people are willing to work in a week has been declining. But we've seen that really change in the last two years. Uh, it is significantly harder to get people today to volunteer for overtime on a weekend than it was two years ago. Uh, not, notwithstanding back, you know, when I was down in my steel toes when, on Monday mornings when people were begging for overtime. I mean, that's all, that has all changed. And, um, and I think that one of the things the pandemic has done is it's kind of reset our society in terms of how does my job fit into my vocation, you know? And uh, for some of us old timers, you know, our, my job is my vocation. Uh, for, for the folks that we're working with right now, the job is part of what they want to be, but it's only part of what they want to be. And, and I think that's, that's really shown up here in the last, uh, during the pandemic. So being a shipbuilder does not define them, for example, as your generation did. Right, I, you know, I, I would put it this way. We hired uh, 25,000 people in the five years before the pandemic. And, uh, and we did that when unemployment 
as a statistic was historically low, 3%. And we were, we were able to attract our people. We knew how to do it. We knew the mechanisms to do it. We knew what motivated people. Uh, we, we saw capacity, because I know you want to talk a little bit about that. We saw capacity as really a function of how, how quickly can you create workforce. Um, that dynamic, even though we've hired over 6,000 people since the pandemic started, that dynamic has changed. It's changed more in the last two years than it had changed in the 10 years prior to that. And, and so that's a, that is then, since that dynamic is changing across the country, it's changing for us, it's also changing for our suppliers, that then turns into uh, capacity issues at suppliers, it turns into late parts, it turns into inflation, it turns into higher prices, uh, all of that. But I, I, I would uh, instinctively, this is a gut check, it's not a, I don't have any data to, to support this, but my gut tells me that the fundamental thing that's happened here over the last two years is that our society has moved work into a little bit of a different uh, cubbyhole than it was before the pandemic. And uh, for a lot, maybe for a lot of good reasons, but maybe, but that's what's going on. And we as institutions have to figure out how to deal with that. I, I don't think there's any going back. I think we have to figure out how to deal with that. Um, that's uh, actually one of the, the best uh, explanations for what it is that we've seen. Are we approaching this from a national basis the way, you know what I mean? You're, you're talking about a real tectonic change, glimpses of which you've been seeing, and now you've seen it come to fruition. There are 40 members of Congress here, uh, and a lot of other senior leaders, what, what's a broader way for the administration and lawmakers to be thinking about this if the fundamental nature of work is changing? Or, or, or is there anything that can be done about it? Well, I, I mean, work has been changing for my whole career, right? right. And the, what we do on a day in and day out basis. I don't know if there's a silver bullet. I think it's more about uh, this is now the environment. And, and so uh, we're going to, uh, for one, uh, I mentioned the unemployment rate is at 3%. Well, that's 3% of the people that want to work. But we've had, uh, I don't know, three to five million people in the last two years decide they no longer want to work. So, so the size of the available pool has gone down. And so one of the things that we think about it in our company is how do you go into the into the one-third of the population that is choosing not to work, how do you go and find something that will in will help them bring their ability to what we want to go do? How do how do we do that? Well, you know, we got security clearances, we've got training requirements, we, well, there's a lot of things that we got to get through. So I, I don't know that we've solved that, but I think that that's going to be the way companies are going to have to start thinking about this, is they're going to have to going to have to move away from the, move, move on, not away, but move on from here are the people that want to work to how do, we, how do we get people who may not even want to work, how do we get them to rethink that and find, you know, maybe it's not a full-time job, maybe it's some kind of, of engagement that takes advantage of some of their talent and it helps them balance the way that they want to do business. So I, I think we're at the beginning of a conversation on that and I, I don't know that I have a great answer for it. but. Um, it's still exceptionally thought-provoking. Let me ask you, I'm not going to ask you the same uh, continuing resolution question because we were talking just before we started about the fact that we've been asking the exact same question for the last 10 years. So we have vowed at this Reagan National Defense Forum not to ask the exact same question. So I'm going to ask a different form of the exact same question. <laughs> and, 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 uh, uh, and I apologize to my audience because uh, each time they hear this, they're like, oh, it's the same BS answer everybody gives. Um, uh, without any disrespect to anybody giving me this, those BS answers. Ultimately, we, we, we keep decrying continuing resolutions, but we continue to live under continuing resolutions. From your standpoint, what is it CEOs can do 
is this an engagement issue? Um, right, I mean, there is a political divide. It's more bitter than it's ever been. All sorts of absurdities are now interfering, and we don't know whether or not we can get an NDAA. Everybody vows to do it, but the odds of passing it go down. What, what has to change, right? Because the definition of insanity is doing the same damn thing all the time and expecting a different outcome. Well, it's, you're right. It is the same question, and we kind of come to the same answers, and then we move on for a year, and we do it all over again. You know, if we had this going on in our business, um, we, would, we would diagnose it in a way that we kind of do a Pareto chart and do all the systems engineering stuff. We come back and say, you know what, the incentives, the incentives are all wrong. I mean, what's the, what's the penalty for not getting a budget passed by the 1st of October? Yeah, I mean, we, we go continuing resolution. There's parts of our national security that are threatened, but the people that are doing this work, are they really being penalized for not getting this done by the 1st of October? That's, that's what we would do in our business is that, you know, if you can't be on time, we're going to find an incentive that's going to make it worth your while to be on time. I don't know what that incentive is because I'm not a member of Congress and I'm not in the administration and I, I, I'm just looking at it as, a, as an institution organizationally. If this is stuff we can't get done on time, there are actually ways to fix that. And I am a believer that if you incentivize it, you get it. So maybe we find a way to incentivize the on-time process. I don't know what that is, but that's a, you know, an approach. Um, uh Lightning round. Um, any uh, new impact uh, from this continuing resolution bind, right? I mean, do you find any uh, new problem that you're going to be facing aside from the normal argument that, you know, uh, that the Chinese win each time we deliver ourselves a self-inflicted wound like this? But from a business standpoint, any impacts? Just the usual. Uh, you know, there's stuff that was need, needs to start that won't start now until, um, you know, February. I, 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 I was a little surprised at how long this went out to February 18th, I think, or something. That was surprising to me. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's every, everybody you talk to here will be able to make a list of the things that are being impacted because they can't get stuff started on time. Um, you know, I, I think more, it's just, it's eroding, it's eroding trust. Do, are you worried about a combined impact of you know, Omicron driving more government spending, all of a sudden we have inflation pressures and suddenly the defense budget, right, the budget that everybody here from a bipartisan standpoint is agreeing has to go up, all of a sudden can't go up. Is there at all, you know, are you st stalking that dark shadow in the far corner of the room? Yeah, I think that, you know, we want to we want to think about it in terms of budget, but but actually what we need to be thinking about it in, in terms of capability. You know, and how do you get more capability per dollar? How do you get more readiness per dollar? How do you get more efficient and, and do those kinds of things that you're doing today for actually less outlay? And, then, and, the, and you know, that's kind of where we are, we're focusing our efforts. I mean, we've made significant capital investments in our shipyards to drive the cost of our ships down. We, we have invested in the unmanned undersea space because we believe that's a way that the Navy's going to leverage lower cost asymmetric capability. We, we have invested in a lion where we have artificial intelligence and machine learning and synthetic training and network management and all of that stuff because we see that as an extension of the platforms that we build that will actually line up with where the Navy wants to go and where they need to go. And if we can help show them that way in an efficient way, then the budget budget increase would not only be, it would be like a twofer, right? You would right. get, you would, you're going to get more capability for the dollar now, and then you have, if you have more dollars, then you're going to get that much more capability again. So that's where we're, we're focused on this. Our ability to swing the fiscal policy and the monetary policy is uh, next to zero. So, 
you know, that's environmental for us. And, and, and given the environment that we see, the possible environments that are out there, it makes sense to us to figure out how do we get the most fill in the blank per dollar. Readiness, availability, A sub zero, however they want to measure it, uh, how do we get the most of that for, for per dollar? You sounded exactly like my uh, producer there with A sub zero, uh, which comes up uh, regularly in conversation. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for that. AUKUS, uh, an extraordinary agreement uh, among the United States, Great Britain, and Australia to deliver a nuclear submarine capability. Um, I remember many years ago writing this, and a, a former uh, NR called me and knows on certain terms and thought I was insane for proposing the idea of uh, uh, nuclear submarines for Australia. Um, you have a very significant operation in Australia, in Huntington Ingalls, on the shipbuilding side of things. Uh, it's uh, now 16 months or so left on this uh, study period where uh, the three allies will be working at capabilities. Um, you know, I've written that the British design may be a better answer uh, for, for the Australians in part because the United States Navy has said, hey, nothing will interfere with two attack boats a year and one uh, Columbia a year and, and you've got your hands full on that. Um, what are some of the things that you and Electric Boat, right, uh, the two preeminent submarine makers on the planet, are putting as inputs into this? And is it viable? Can you build eight or 12 unique Australian nuclear attack submarines and have it all make sense? Let's first of all say we are, we are both of us, I won't speak for Electric Boat, but I would just observe that both of us are engaged with naval reactors as the lead on this project. And, and it does feel to me like this is uh, very similar to before my time. <laughs> Hard to believe there's things before my time, but you know, in the 50s we did this with the UK, and so I think it's that serious. I think there is a, there is a real intent to to try to figure out the question that you just asked: that can we really do create a fleet uh, of an Australian nuclear-powered uh, submarine capability? I think though that. Uh, uh, my contribution to that is we do have an office in Australia that has been working very hard uh, with the Australian government to create a, uh, an Australian shipbuilding capability. They basically went to zero. They went cold iron on shipbuilding for many years. Uh, they're, a, they're an example of why you can't let this go away because when you bring it back, it's, it's very difficult. We have pretty good insight into how difficult that is. And I would say before you get caught up in the... Uh, the what design is it going to be or anything like that. It's going to be, how do we create a culture that's actually going to make this happen, right? And it's not just a, a culture that knows how to machine fancy machining parts. It's a culture that's going to know how to operate these ships, and it's a culture that knows how to, how to maintain and sustain these platforms, uh, that's going to have a view that, um, you know, similar to the U.S. Navy and the, and the U.K. Navy, that you know, it's a zero defect view. That's a cultural mindset that you have to put in place that does not, that's not a light switch that you turn on. I would say that, that that's probably the first and biggest hurdle to get over is how do you create that. After that, you can start figuring out, do we need to make everything in Australia? Do we make it, do we actually create a, a you know, a holy lock-like uh, port for the U.S. to have a submarine there for a while? I mean, I, I don't know, I, you know, I'm old, but that's what we did back when the boomers couldn't go off the East Coast. We were we were coming off of Europe, and I mean, do you do something like that? Because that's a, that's a way to start to ingrain culture. Um, none of those things are easy. So, at the end, the answer to your question of can they do it, I would say, sure. Over what time? If you say can they do that in the next five years, I would say, no. Uh, in the next 25 years, if with 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 good forethought and thoughtful strategic work, yeah, I think they could. 
Um, so we'll see. Mike, thanks so much. You bet. And we want to express our condolences to the Dole family uh, in the wake of the passing of Senator Bob Dole, uh, a giant in American politics, a military hero, uh, as well as presidential candidate and political icon. Uh, as everybody knows, he passed away today at the age of 98, and a grateful nation will always remember his sacrifice and service to the nation.